Cult Hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad. I'm Stephen. I'm these days an organisational psychologist, but I was raised in a high control group or cult. I left when I was about 30 when you were born, Celine. So today we are very lucky to be able to speak to Olivia Jackson. Olivia is author of a really important and interesting book and I think it's a piece of research. Um, it's called Uncertain and that is a collective memoir of deconstructing faith. So obviously we'll get Olivia to tell us about the book but welcome to the show Olivia. Thank you. Hi. Right it's really interesting. Uh, it's a really good book. Uh, first of all we'll um, encourage our listeners to to buy a copy. Um, it's a fascinating book. It's, it's fairly uh, recently released so um, it's something that I think should be on people's Christmas list if they're, if they're interested in that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, Olivia, about your story. So why why write a book like this and, and where, where are you coming from? What, what's your interest in this sort of topic? Well, I uh, got involved in sort of evangelical Christianity when I was 14. Um, and while there was, you know, for me at that age, there was actually a lot of good about it in terms of I was, well, I was a, a very shy 14-year-old. I was miserable at school and suddenly I had all these shiny, happy new friends. Um, and and I think it gave me, that those friendships gave me a great deal of um, of joy, of, um, I suppose, yeah, just, just companionship um, at, a, at a time, you know, we all, we all have a pretty rough te- teenage experience, I think. Um, mm. And I was unhappy and being bullied in school and things. And it was something different from that. Um, as things went on, I think things got more and more controlling. Uh, I ended up working after university, I worked for a missions organization overseas, um, which was it was a broadly American-based organization, youth mission organization, um, and just a heck of a lot of rules. And it was really what I think sociologists refer to as a total institution. So it was my employer, it was my social life, it was my housing provider, um, and it was also telling me you know, what I should believe, really. There was mm. very little space to question the group beliefs, um, the broader ideology, or what your leaders said. Uh, your leaders very much spoke for for God, um, and if you felt that God, whatever, whatever, or whoever that might be, was saying something different, then uh, what your leaders said definitely trumped that. Um, cool. And I worked for them for about ten years, and uh, I left pretty cynical, actually. Um, and I think my process of leaving that had, I, I, I didn't realize at the time, but had really, my process of leaving that sort of type of faith had already begun. Um, just questioning things like, well, you know, why why are these systems so patriarchal? I mean, the organization I worked for did have women in leadership, but it was still it was still pretty patriarchal. Um, mm. I I think questioning the way that I saw my friends who were LGBTQ plus being treated, um, things like being forced to publicly confess, um, and and their not even their relationships being condemned, but their their sexual orientation being condemned. Mm. Um, I think I had really started to question a lot of that stuff by the time I left. Um, and I think over the years, things just started to unravel more and more. Um, 
a belief in hell, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and finding finding others who were also questioning things, uh, beginning to question what I'd grown up being taught and believing and the systems as well, particularly the systems in which I had been taught those things. Um, and really, you know, finding that there were a lot of resources out there about what's come to be known as faith deconstruction, but so many of them uh, with the with the exception of a few podcasts, so many of the books particularly were American-based, uh, mm. which is, you know, there, there are huge overlaps. And the British British evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, is very much influenced by um, American churches, uh, particularly the big mega churches, particularly in an mm. age of internet. Um, but we do still have a different experience. And I just thought, why is there nothing out there which is, you know, <laughs> British-based? And then it was, mm. you know, mid-first lockdown, I suddenly thought, well, maybe I should write. No, 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 I should not write something. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just that little niggle, which I think which I think I once would have called, you know, God speaking to me um, <laughs> and just sort of thinking, well, maybe I could tell my story. No, nobody wants to listen to my story. Okay, maybe I can just tell other people's stories and people who don't have a huge platform already, not the people, not the celebrities who deconstruct, but actually the person who's been, you know, faithfully going to youth group, faithfully serving their church, mm -hmm. maybe working for a church or a mission agency. What is their experience like? Um, why did they deconstruct? Um, yeah, what's the process for them? Where have they landed now? Um, so I just started collecting stories, basically interviewing people. Uh, I put a survey online, um, surveyed, I think, 400 people, um, which was a bit more than I'd bargained for. Um, and <laughs> interviewed 150 of them, uh, which again was a lot more than I'd bargained for. And uh, the transcription was interesting. Uh, yeah. Just incredible amount of work. I will admit, I kind of thought I was going to get maybe 20 half hour interviews, but the survey itself took, I think about, took people about 20 minutes to fill in. Wow. So for a bunch of strangers mm. to fill that in for, you know, someone they'd never met. I also realized with that though, and the number of people willing to tell their stories, there's such a, you know, people are desperate to have their story, to tell their stories, to mm process this a lot of people sort of said to me well a lot of people actually said which was fantastic you know this survey's been really helpful I've never thought things through in this kind of a way right. before in this kind of structured way but then people telling their stories some of them would say oh this is the first time I've told my whole story out loud um, this mm. is the first time I've spoken about this or thanks for the free therapy um, <laughs> which was you know it was I I tried to follow academic guidelines in terms of ethics um, mm. but but it's not an academic book. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very much more conversational than, um, than academic. Uh, but, but I really, there was no one, you know, no one whose story I just thought, well, that was boring or that was pointless. It was, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. everyone, it was so rich and I, you know, just amazed that so many people were willing to trust me with their stories. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so interesting. And, and in a way, you know, the, I think that's, we don't we don't produce it into a book although i have thought about um you know all the people we've spoken to so far on the podcast I, i've never counted it up but i think there must be around 100 people already that we've spoken to um yeah so everybody's different everybody's experience is different but there are those common themes and obviously i want to uh, we want to talk to you about about some of those but mm. um yeah it's a fascinating piece of work and 
incredibly ambitious um, to, to to take that on. So, yeah, and, and um, a really interesting way of of getting uh, getting those stories out there. So, thanks for that. It's brilliant. And again, I would recommend people people read it with your early entrance into this world so you said you're around 14 when you kind of got involved with all of this um it's something that I asked um Rachel that was on our show before as well um around because she joined um a group when she was sort of in that in that age range and I think it is something that a lot of people can attest to sort of being brought into these groups at that time um and I kind of think to myself well being a minor and being brought into these groups we need to protect everybody but especially this this age group like do you have any thoughts around that specifically i think there are some massive safeguarding red flags there i do think i know that with the organization i worked for um, there was specifically something called the 414 window which was and that's not just that organization that's that's quite a that's a well-known thing um which is specifically targeting children between the ages of four and 14 for evangelism um with the idea that that's when they're most open to the lord uh but i also i now see that very differently um i think that for me well for anybody at that age 14 is you know you are going through turmoil, uh, whatever's going on in your life. Uh, your hormones are all over the place and you're starting to push against your your family. Um, and for me, I think to an extent, it was a slight form of teenage rebellion um, to, to do something totally different from my family. Um, but I also think, you know, it's what we learn in those years, um, those early years sort of up to about sort of 14, you don't really start, you know, that those are the years where most of us are still behaving in class and not questioning our parents. And so actually the church stuff that you get taught in those years really goes in. You don't question that, maybe until much later, if at all. And I think that to target children in that age group is, on one hand, I think it's profoundly cynical and dangerous on the other hand, I know that when you have a real fear that those people are going to hell if they don't get saved, then it can feel like you are doing the best by this child. Mm. And I, you know, it's, I think so many things are done by people in high control groups out of their own fear and their own um, their best intentions, but which are profoundly harmful. Um, mm. I, it's it's amazing to me how many people who weren't brought up in those groups got involved either sort of in, in that sort of age bracket or if they were adults at a really low point when they had a crisis. You know, maybe they maybe a relationship had broken down, someone had died, a job had been lost, this kind of thing. That's when they get involved. Um, and, and again, you know, a healthy organisation would be saying, well, hang on, don't let's make a commitment here until we've actually sorted out what's, yeah. what else is going on in your life mm. um, and not actually targeting those people um so i yeah i'm i'm now profoundly cynical about that i also see that having got involved i was quite frequently because my my family weren't considered saved um my well my father had died when i was six um so my mother was my sole surviving parent um and i was quite often being told well you know she's not a real Christian, so she can't really understand. And so, you know, mm. you, basically you should listen to us and not her. And to tell a child that they should not listen to their parent um, and to listen to the group instead 
is just, I mean, massive safeguarding it's red flags there. Sinister. Yeah, really mm, sinister. sinister. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's what do we, as a wider society, want to be doing that? Should we be doing about that? Can, because obviously it's such a difficult one as to how we um, protect you and what rules can you put in place? But do you think we should be putting stronger rules in place? I have no idea what those rules would be or how they would be policed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's it, again, it's it's very much, you know, the issues come up in the news again this week about the potential ban on conversion therapy mm-hmm. and a lot of conversion therapy um, or a lot of other sinister practices within high control groups. It doesn't look like therapy and maybe it's not as violent as, um, you know, electric shock therapy or something. It's, well, I'll pray for you. It's the subtle pressure. Mm. It's the water you swim in. It's it's the fact that perhaps you've been brought up thinking this is right or this is wrong. Um, and so you go along with it. And it's not therapy, but it's still pressure. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, all those areas, they're so, they're often subtle. They often don't appear until you get further in. Um, they won't be spoken about from the front very often. Sometimes they will. Not very often, mm. though. You have to go digging. Uh, and I've, I've, I've gone digging. Um <laughs> But how do you, I, I mean, on the other hand, you know, we now have laws against coercive control. Can it be covered by coercive control? In some cases, yes. Um, coercive control is an incredibly slippery thing to pin down and to legislate against. Somehow we've managed to do it. Um, but again, how do, you, how do you police that? How do you police what is being told to children? Um, and children in our broader society are told all sorts of harmful things. Um, and I just don't know how how do we protect them from all the harm that's out there, particularly when it's being done um, with with best intentions in mind. Um, and then there's the explicitly harmful stuff that's done to children around child discipline in churches, which is you know, that's a whole other thing. And that I think a lot of that does actually fall under child abuse, existing child abuse laws. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And yeah, I think it is difficult. And the the coercive control laws um, currently only apply to a an, like an intimate um, mm-hmm. relationship or a familiar familial relationship so um, currently I think it's difficult to use those laws around cults it's one of the things yeah. that um, I know you know we've spoken about on this podcast quite a bit and I know that um, the Family Survival Trust is uh, working on that um, so yeah it is it is hard and I suppose the other thing that that I guess is quite tricky is that you know in your case it, it wasn't like you were brought up in it so you weren't raised in the organization but I guess um, there's a lot of parents that would actually be quite relieved of, of their kids going off to Christian camp you know as opposed to um, smoking um, at the corner of the street you know so mm-hmm. it, it feels perhaps to some parents like oh this is a safe sort of environment for them as well yeah I think so and I think I mean for my mother it's you know the thing is she she's no longer alive and I can't um I can't ask her about this now and I can't apologize either which is you know which is awful for some of the things that I did and said um but I I do think she was really pleased that I'd found a great new group of friends um Mm. and um things that I enjoyed doing which included as a teenager going overseas on short-term mission trips. Um, but I think if she had 
known the half of what I was being teaching, mm. uh, being taught, um, then then I think she would have had more to say. And I think there were times when I said something particularly d- judgy or behaved in <laughs> obnoxious ways yeah. when she did question things. Um, but by that stage, it was very much it was yeah it was the us and them oh well you wouldn't possibly understand and you know this kind of thing and and I had that sort of ingrained well you know she's she's not a real Christian therefore um, I should be listening to the group and not to her uh, going mm. on and but I do think for a lot of parents you know and I think probably for her initially it was great you know great new group of friends she's happy yeah uh, absolutely um so can I um just talk about some of the the themes that that come out of these discussions uh, that you had with with these people um I, i've picked a few just because they interested me but obviously you, you may have other favorites you want to talk about olivia but um this idea of of sin management um that's one of the chapter headings i think mm. and then there's another one that i noted down which was the heart is treacherous so um, i was raised on a particular translation of the bible called the new world translation which is jehovah's witnesses own uh translation and in that version it says the heart is treacherous who can know it it, it has this sort of way of putting it um but that's kind of i think that's the the, the bit of the bible that you talk about there this kind of fear of ourself or or yeah. um you know our own nature um so these are th- sorts of teachings that you see as as quite potentially damaging and harmful to us. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you found out when you were talking to people about that? Yeah, this came up again and again. This was a teaching Mm. which most people had heard. Um, It is, you know, it's a Bible verse taken very much out of context. Um, The other one that's often lumped in with it is um, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on on your, in your own understanding, Um, Mm, which, you know, it's the same thing. Don't trust your own Mm. understanding. That's right. Um, Trust basically in effect it, it's trust what the group tells you god says that's right um that's right. or what your leaders tell you um mm. what it means in effect is that there is a constant it, the bar is set very high for what constitutes sin or sinfulness um and it is a constant lack of trust in people everyone is constantly policed um no one can be trusted to you know just get on with a life without without falling into sin. Um, and, and it also mm. means there's no privacy. Anybody can ask you a question at any time about the sin in your life or how your spiritual life is going or what your thought life is. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, sins can even be thoughts. You're constantly it's policing terrifying. your own thoughts. It's very much, mm. you know, Robert J. Lifton's thing of milieu control. It is that intrapersonal mm. milieu control where you are policing your own thoughts. Um, you are having to confess to sinful thoughts, um, you know, that that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I don't think the leaders get questioned very often, but the rest of us certainly, certainly did. Um, there's a sort mm. of constant accountability. Often I found I was assigned uh, a mentor um, or a leader and they were assigned to me without, regardless of my trust in them, at times someone I hadn't even met before. But then if you don't share your deepest, darkest thoughts and sins, you are told you have trust issues. Um or you have, you know, an accountability partner who tends to be a peer and you can, you know, mm. you can ask each other at any time. You can get together for these accountability sessions and, um, you know, tell them tell them what your sins are, this kind of thing. It also means that a lot of stuff is attributed to sin, things that go wrong in your life. You know, I've, I've heard of everything from uh, car accidents to miscarriages and fertility issues to mental health issues, um, 
attributed to oh well it's because you've got sin in your life uh, mm-hmm. I know that when I when I was uh, I had undiagnosed PTSD um, and and I had been prescribed antidepressants and I was talking to one of my leaders about this and um, she just you know she gave me a real hard stare and she said is there sin in your life <laughs> and, you know, it, I look back and I laugh, but actually, um, mm. and I think at the time I was kind of, at the time I just thought I was, I was getting cynical by then. And I just thought for heaven's sake, you know, this is, yeah. this is <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, this is absolute nonsense. Um, and mm. the other, the other practice I came across, I don't know how widespread this is. I've certainly come across it in more than one church in more than one organization but it, when i asked on a group that i'm on of people who've left the organization i used to work for um you know how many people went through this there were a lot of stories um in what's not a huge group um and stories mm. from all ages as well people who left decades ago people who left a couple of years ago of um what we used to call openness and brokenness sessions where basically Shortly after you arrive, maybe in the first couple of weeks, um, all you're all put in a group in a room together. All the students put in a room together, and you are expected to confess to sins, and also mm. confess to sins which have been committed against you. Perhaps you were sexually assaulted. Perhaps you were abused as a child. This kind of thing, and you're supposed to confess to what other people have done mm. to you as well. And this can go on for hours, hours, um, and you're just you know you're shut in this room. You don't break for meals or necessarily. You, you you can maybe go to the loo, but that's about it. And you've got a group of effectively strangers um, confessing supposed sins for hours, and it makes you incredibly vulnerable, um, and it gives you that huge um, inappropriate bonding, basically, to mm. to your peers and to the group. You have been incredibly vulnerable, and, and in that context you are far more likely to then trust the group um, believe believe the group's doctrines because you've bought in um, it makes it much more difficult to question that yeah that's something that um i think is actually being talked about a lot more on social media i've seen recently in um not just in like the cult group or high control group sense but um with sort of more narcissistic people as well um and sort of calling it like trauma bonding and saying mm. that you kind of um or like trauma dumping sorry where you kind of without um permission or consent just dump all of that onto somebody or you try and purposely make them do it to you and it's something that's you know you, you kind of yeah you, you it shouldn't be something that's pulled from somebody or thrust upon somebody you kind of need to have trust and the desire to <laughs> um, yeah yeah margaret singer talks about that in her book um cults in our mists actually she describes that very thing but in that case it was a it was a sort of commercial setup so it was like a coaching type setup so everybody sat around in a room in a sort of circle and um had to sort of talk about some of the most personal things that that happened to them mm-hmm. um and again so this is a very this is a common cultic tactic really um and the other thing that it, of course it does is it it um, it it 
gives people power over you because mm-hmm. they now know stuff about you yep. that you don't really want to to go much further but it now is you know they've got this information and it's like it can be something they hold over you mm-hmm. uh, just to clarify that the people that you spoke to olivia were, were these all um what we might describe evangelical um churches or pentecostal churches what, the what majority was the, the were evangelical and pentecostal Um, some weren't. So one of the people who filled in the survey was a former Catholic nun. Um, some were from a few were from more mainstream Protestant churches, but very few. Um, I think I had two former, um, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, which was interesting because I, I very much grew up believing that, um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, you know, they weren't really Christians, they're a cult, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, turns mm. out we had an awful lot of overlap, um, except they got off without having to believe in hell and eternal conscious torment, um, <laughs> which is probably why we didn't like them. Thank you for listening to Cult Hackers, an indie podcast. That means we're not part of a big media organisation with huge advertising budgets and massive reach. So just by listening to this, you're supporting the little guy. The hardest thing for us is not content. We love recording episodes and talking to amazing and interesting people. Now, by far the hardest thing is getting in front of the potential millions of listeners out there with millions of podcasts scrambling for attention. And here's where you can help. Simply by telling people about the podcast. Just telling somebody about it can really help. You can share an episode on social media or private messaging using your app. Or on some apps, you can leave a rating. Better still, say a few words. So please help us get cult hackers in front of more people. And now back to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. We, we all looked at everybody else and pointed and laughed at the silly mm-hmm. cult they were in. Um, yeah, um, you you reached out to us and um, one of the things you, you said was... Um, Oh, by the way, yeah, uh, there is purity culture in the UK and there are, what, what did you describe? What was the actual term? Because I, I think I'd quite naively said, I've never really heard of um, purity rings and signing purity contracts. Um, so you you sort of said, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it is happening in this country. So, yeah, yeah that's that sort of thing is, is also something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, obviously, we've spoken to... Increasing numbers, actually, of ex-evangelicals and, um, I suppose, these sorts of groups. Um, I'm becoming much more aware of the, the sheer number of this. It's absolutely astounding. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you found out around this this purity culture and, and what this is doing to people? Yeah, Please. I mean, again, I think some of this, um, some of this goes back to the age thing um, mm. of teaching children young children prepubescent children um that their anything sexual is is wrong unless it happens within a monogamous heterosexual marriage um and that can go right through to you know sexual thoughts um or even just fancying someone and i think when you're taught that before you hit puberty um, you're kind of, well, you know, you're kind of at a stage where you're kind of going, uh, boys, so, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that, and that's, that kind of just, just as you're hitting the age when you start to become interested, um, in, in sex and relationships, um, 
that's when a lot of this teaching kicks in. Younger for some people, I did definitely come across some people who were being told by the age of about eight, you need to cover up, you need to wear a t-shirt over that swimming costume, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But it is that constant, um, again, policing, policing of people's sexuality, policing of people's thoughts, policing mm. of people's relationships and what they do with their body. It doesn't keep people safe. Um, actually, when when studies have been done on the age at which people who are taught this um, have their first sexual encounters, it's exactly the same as everybody else, but mm. it tends to be less safe. It tends to, um, people tend to have less sexual education um, and they tend not to use contraception because that would be, well, you planned that in advance. It wasn't just a slip up, was it? And therefore, rates of um, unplanned pregnancies are higher. Rates of STDs are higher amongst young people who have been brought up in purity culture. Um, and there's actually someone called Lindsay Monroe, I think, who's just published her MA dissertation um, on purity culture in this country. And, and she very mm. much points to it as a safeguarding issue, you know, as mm -hmm. young people who are more likely to have unplanned pregnancies, more likely to have STDs. But also, I mean, one thing I found was that I think I asked if people had been taught about consent in a church context. And I think something like 4% of people I interviewed, uh, I surveyed had been taught about consent in a positive way. We were not taught about consent. Uh, and therefore, actually, you can stumble into some really unwanted encounters and have no framework for saying no, no framework for, well, that was wrong. That wasn't my fault. Um, it wasn't because I led him on or my top was too low or this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that carries over into marriage as well, um, especially where you have gender hierarchies and, and there have been plenty of studies by people like the World Health Organization on rates of sexual assault in gender hierarchied societies. Um, I certainly came across teaching that marital rape is not, doesn't exist uh, because a wife always has to be ready um, to mm. please her husband. Um, and, and very much, you know, teachings against the laws which have criminalized marital rape. Um, which again, really sinister. Most people I came across, it, it, it didn't go that far. Um, certainly in this country, most people recognize that marital rape was actually possible, um, but not everybody. Um, uh, it's very much, it is a policing of men's bodies as well as women's bodies, um, but women very much get the brunt of it. There's, you know, often you have this situation where, Men are the leaders. Men are in control. Men seem to be able mm. to control everything except their own sexual urges. Women are responsible for those. <laughs> um, but it's a way I think of one person said to me, um, one of the men I interviewed said, you know, I feel like it's a way that we as men can project our own shame onto someone else, onto women. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, that was a really good way of putting it. Of course it damages yeah. men, but when as a woman, you've got the shame of the shame of having a female body, um, the shame of potentially leading people astray, wearing the wrong top and, and by the wrong top, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I look back at some of the clothes I used to wear and it wasn't just that I was untrendy. It was, you know, it was... <laughs> The photos are appalling. Um, but um, 
Yeah, and but then on top of that, you've got if you actually as a as a woman, if you have any kind of libido, that is just horrifying because you're also being taught that this isn't something that women struggle with. So mm. if you do struggle with that, i.e., if you have any kind of sexual urges whatsoever, that's just doubly shaming. Um, for men, it's very much well. This is inevitable for men. This is just something that all men struggle with. For women. Mm -mm, that's that's off the cards and that goes right through to as i've said you know fancying someone or you know sort of self-pleasuring that kind of thing it's it's just it's just yeah so shameful yeah that's um that that's true and um i remember so being raised in um we never called it um, or I suppose purity culture is something that a term that we I wouldn't have recognised that, but it absolutely was purity culture. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean things like um, rape within marriage. I don't think that just wouldn't have even registered as a thing. No. You know, I, I wouldn't have even thought about that that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know um, what would have happened if if a woman in the congregation had have gone to the elders and said you know, my husband assaulted me and raped me last night. Um, I have no idea what the, uh, what the response to that would be, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be what we would hope it would be. Um, mm. cause it just, yeah, it just hasn't, hadn't, it wasn't a thing. It just wasn't something that we would recognize. Also what you said there about, um, women and their, um, their sexuality, um, I remember when I was a teenager, you know, and, and um, the mums and dads would complain about the girls being lad mad. Oh, they're just lad mad. They're talking about boys all the time. And it was like a really bad thing mm. that they were doing. And it was something, yeah, as you said, shameful, really. And um, so I thought it was thus because I did, you know, I was uh, I was raised in that environment. So you're absolutely right. It's um, and it is exactly the same formula, exactly the same system, mm. regardless of which which group it is, which religion. Yeah, and I don't think. I mean, we didn't call it purity culture when when I was in that. No, That's definitely a term. Not, yeah. You know, yeah. if you hear someone talking about purity culture, you know, you're probably on the same page. <laughs> yes. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't think yeah. they like brand it and slap a sticker. No, like, <laughs> no although there was branding. Know. So the um, mm. the American Southern Baptist um, Church came up with this true love waits uh, thing. In, I guess yeah. it was probably it was the 90s, late 90s, I think. Um, and that was that was branded and industrialized and commercialized. Um, and that's where a lot of these um silver ring it's called the silver ring thing where you girls particularly would wear um effectively a sort of like a wedding ring where they had mm. you know trusted themselves to their fathers until they get married and there's a whole lot of creepy stuff that goes on with it as well um Absolutely. and the interesting thing was how many people i spoke to who'd worn those rings or signed purity pledges had done it of their own volition and in many cases their parents had no idea um it because I think that particular iteration of purity culture really got going when their parents were already adults. A lot of it came out of a response, a knee-jerk response to the HIV-AIDS crisis. It has its roots further mm. back, and particularly in America, there are roots in the ending of the anti-miscegenation laws. Um, so it was further back, there's an attempt to control interracial marriage. Um, 
But more recently, and where it gets more commercialized, I think it's coming sort of on the back of the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s, it really got going. Um, and therefore, it was really, it was much more uh, strict um, than a lot of people's parents had known, even if they'd grown up in the church. And therefore, they often right. didn't know what their kids were being taught in youth group. Mm. I mean, that's something I think we, we should um, probably talk more about um, is is warning parents about, obviously, it's their decision to send them off to Christian camp or, or whatever. And, you know, I guess we would support parents' decisions around raising children within, obviously, within certain boundaries. Um, but, um, but surely you should know what is being taught to your kids yes, absolutely. Um, in these places. And mm. I think there is very much a sense of, oh, well, but they're Christians, we can trust them, um, mm. particularly if you're a part of that church or that group yourself. Um, and I, I sort of, you know, it's, it's, a really, it's a really complex thing. Um, you know, I, I would always say to a parent, okay, trust them, but find out too. Mm. You know, do do your research exactly what your children are being taught. Absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, one of the, one of the um, one of the analogies which is used again and again, and this was global. Um, everybody had come across some form of this. So the the um, the idea that if you have sexual contact uh, before you're married, you will basically be damaged goods. And that is taught mm. as you will be like a piece of gum that's already been chewed and, and nobody wants a piece of chewed gum. You'll be like a rose with the petals ripped off. You'll be like a mm. piece of sticky tape that's already been stuck to something. And therefore it's, you know, it's, it's unusable. Mm. Well, you know, or a, or a cookie with, you know, that's had a bite taken out of it or, yeah. or a lollipop that's been licked, whatever mm. that, you know, mm. endless illustrations, but actually comparing your, your body your sexuality to something which is disgusting, something which is used mm. up, something which is no good. Um, it's it's not only saying your sexuality or your body is only valuable in in its use to other people, but it's all also really playing a lot of the time on disgust psychology and that sense of revulsion. Yeah. Um, mm. It's and you end up with that sense of revulsion towards your own body, towards your own sexuality. And and it's just profoundly unhealthy. Someone called Sheila Ray Gregoire. She's Canadian. She's wonderful. Uh, she's done, a, and she and her daughter did a huge survey of twenty thousand evangelical women and right. their experiences of of purity culture. And they found that women who had been taught this had, when they were married, they had twice the level of sexual dysfunction, things like vaginismus, um, than women who hadn't been taught this because you've spent so long saying, no, 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 pushing mm. all of this away. You can't just flick a switch. Oh, I'm married mm. now. It's fine. Let's have a great time. Um, yeah. Your body just goes, you know, and yep. you can't. Um, and then you've got all the messaging about you have to please your husband. Mm. It's, yeah, I think it's profoundly damaging, um, even when it's done ostensibly to protect young people. It's profoundly damaging. And people come out of that not knowing themselves not knowing their bodies not knowing their sexuality um yeah so to pull on a few points that you kind of raised throughout this so kind of i think it's interesting the obviously double standards throughout so there's the gendered double standards but also the um idea of like sexuality and sort of men being out of control and obviously it's 
mm-hmm. like se- um, and not able to sexually control themselves for their desire um and it's women's sort of role to contain that or allow that when they're married whenever so you know depending on what state you're in and also but what I think is interesting is there's this idea that yeah there's no way of controlling um sexuality but if you're gay you can control that and just stop it Mm -hmm. and I think that's interesting oh yeah absolutely and I think that you know there is in many ways you know in those circles it's almost like being gay is is the worst of the worst of the worst mm-hmm. um sure. it's it's horrific um interestingly one of the patterns i found and this became almost a weekly thing i could when i was going through these interviews every day i thought you know i i got to a point where i was like it's going to happen at least once a week that i speak to a woman who tells me until i was in my late 20s my 30s my 40s even my 50s i had no idea that i was queer they just didn't know because your mm. your sexuality is so pushed down. You are in many ways. Um, it it almost seems like um, uh, this isn't to be sort of derogatory to people who are asexual, but it's almost like before you're married in those contexts, you are expected to be asexual. Except if you say that you're asexual, that's wrong too, uh, because mm. the expectation is that you will enter into heterosexual marriage. Um, so, it, you know, it doesn't work for people who actually are asexual, um, but your kind of your sexuality is so repressed um, that often until you start unpacking that, people have no idea. Um, but I think for those who do realize much earlier that they're queer, it's just the consequences are huge, are horrendous. Um, the yeah, effectively conversion therapy um, and the pressure mm-hmm. and the shaming um it's it's certainly something which i've seen treated worse than any other perceived sin and it is one of the things that you state um that sort of started or one of the things that affected you to start questioning your beliefs i think is mm. is the way that people were treated in that in that way yeah yeah absolutely seeing um well i think seeing gay friends and family um who whose relationships were happy and healthy and they were flourishing. And then seeing friends of mine who were Christians who were being made to publicly confess to being, oh, except it wasn't being gay, it was having same-sex attraction. Because you can't Mm. even say that, you know, that I am gay. It's it's because then there's not something you can do about it. But if you're having same-sex attraction, well, we can cast that out of you. Um, and the shaming and the damage that that did. um, I just remember thinking, but who are they hurting? This person hasn't, hasn't even had any sexual contact. What, what, who is this hurting? Nobody. Hmm. And I think that was one of the, that was a big thing that started me kind of going, "Mm, hang on a (laughs) second here. Uh, Hmm. Yeah. Not sure about this. Um. I want to, there's, there's a quote I just want to get in because it's, it's perhaps the funniest um, quote in the book. And I thought I must, I must read this one out. It's brilliant. Um, It was from a a guy called Aidan in the UK. And this relates, it's a different topic really, but I just wanted to get this in before I ask you a question about your, um, your leaving process. Um, But it says uh, the past, this is Aidan, one of your interviewees the pastor when all the climate change stuff kicked off with extinction rebellion said god's got this what the hell does that mean what it means is you're switching people off 
to one of the most critical issues in the history of Earth, you dozy twonk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. But that that reflects something we've spoken about um, on this yeah. podcast, that, you know, all the stuff that's going on in the world, actually, you don't need to get involved in that. You don't need to worry about climate change. You don't need to worry about um, social issues. Um, you, you know, God's going to sort all that out. Um, you just carry on doing the preaching work or whatever mm-hmm. it is that you're supposed to be doing. I thought it was really, really insightful and funny. Well, and I think, you know, particularly with climate change, there's very much an idea, there's, you know, the idea that, well, Jesus is going to come back soon anyway, so of course the earth is going yeah. to end. Um, right. Without recognising that, yeah, the earth's going to end and you're denying the very thing that's going to make that happen. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think it's, whether it's climate change denial, outright denial, or whether it's... um about any issue well we don't need to worry about that because god's got this god's in mm. control mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah that's yeah that's something that um there's someone that i watch on youtube lena norms and she talks a lot about climate change and positive panic around that and um the big reason for it was yeah she was a um sort of christian person and then yeah i guess in the hangover period of coming out of that thinking oh god god doesn't have it <laughs> we've got to do mm-hmm. something mm. kind of like yeah. how how um intense that is as a feeling afterwards you know like, oh. yeah and i, and I <laughs> think a real that. you know a snootiness towards other christian groups uh things like you know, christian climate action or christians who get involved with things like extinction rebellion um i know there are a number of priests who have been arrested for climate action but a real snootiness towards them because mm-hmm. clearly they're just not trusting God enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Instead of kind of going, <laughs> actually, maybe they're doing something. But, useful. you know, th- this this is the logic, though. So, um, I mean, this is uh, – we haven't talked about the the doctrinal issues and the uh, the belief systems and so on. And, and I know I've listened to you, you in other interviews and you're, you're respectful to other people's beliefs, and I think that's, that's, that's important. Um, I think we are most of the time, although um, – I guess sometimes perhaps not as much as you, um, but it it is kind of the logical, there is some logic to this. So Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jehovah God is going to actually transform the earth into a paradise. So it's a bit of a different take on the, so Armageddon's coming, all the bad people get killed, but the earth gets transformed into a paradise. So I know in evangelicalism, it's normally people going to heaven, but um, and the earth can just go to hell in a handbasket but um, either way um it kind of doesn't matter to us because mm. you know either god's going to sort it all out or he's going to just lay it waste anyway and, and take all the good people so this is the consequence these are consequences of beliefs so in my more strident moments when i think actually um should i be respecting all these different beliefs actually they do have consequences they do. and then other times i think you know so i don't know what your your thoughts are on that yeah and i think um well yeah i mean i can be a lot more respectful of people's beliefs when it's going public can't i yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe less so when i'm ranting sure. uh, quietly at home or to friends yeah. um and particularly and i think particularly that goes for um you know, I, I noticed that the things that really get me fired up are some of the things which I've been involved in and I've believed and said. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that includes, you know, well, I, I think I think probably I was, I never really bought into the stuff around gender. Um, I, you know, I grew up effectively in a single parent household and saw my mum doing a pretty good job. Um, mm. And I tended to be, uh, well, 
I think as time went on, I tended to be opinionated and told various things about uh, my spirit of rebellion and that kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, that can be a very harmful, that that's a very harmful teaching with real world consequences, particularly when it comes to things like domestic abuse. And I've seen female friends kicked out of church because they complained about domestic abuse and their husband was very much looked after. Um, stuff around LGBTQ stuff. There is, you know, and the the vanishing, the invisibility of people who don't fit gender norms. Um, that's, you know, that's just not, not acknowledged or it's seen yeah. as liberal or woke or sin, definitely mm. sinful, that kind of thing, because, you know, God only made two sexes, all, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so, so people are effectively disappeared um, if they don't fit that and that, you know, that again, that has real world consequences. Yeah. You know, there, there are things I'm prepared to laugh at. We, you know, we used to do these stupid batty prophetic actions of, you know, which, which didn't have any consequences, thank goodness for anybody except to make us look like complete fools. Um, but actually the other things and the severe disciplining of children, um, mm. that kind of thing, it, it really does, you know, it marks people's lives um, forever. And, and that's, yeah. that's where I think it is. It's a whole other level um, of, of damage um, to self and to others. Yeah. And, you know, invoking the Bible or another holy book to say, this is what it's told us to do. Therefore we, we are going to do it. Um, I, I, I think, I think that should be challenged personally. Um, I'm not asking mm. for you to, to, to agree, but I, I, I feel like it should. Um, well, not I all think, Christians are like that, obviously. Yeah. But. And and that's the thing is often mm. in those circles, you're so limited in your, your view of the Bible and the materials, yes. the resources you are given access to. And yeah. many of us were taught not to study theology because it might even Christian theology, because it might make us question our faith. And I look back now and I go, well, A, they were right, because mm. when I started studying theology, yeah, yeah it raised course. some questions. And when yeah. I started studying mm. the original Greek, yeah, it raised some major questions. But 2,000 years of Christian scholarship, and nobody else got it right except for us? Really, you know? Um, and that's that's certainly not, not everybody had been taught not to study theology, mm. but I think in a lot of the charismatic churches, it's pretty theology light. And that means that what your leader says the Bible means is what the Bible yeah. means. And that's where it gets really dangerous. There is very little room for saying, okay, so you're telling me that the Bible means this, but actually this scholar says it means this. And, you know, maybe we can go with um, a kinder, you know, the kinder of the two interpretations, mm. maybe where it's kind of not that clear on whether being gay is wrong or right or, you know, neutral. Mm. Um, maybe we can go with the kinder interpretation that doesn't harm people. Maybe we, you know, mm. there's no space for that. And that's, I think, any any group which says our way is the only way and our, our vanishingly small interpretation of that, our vanishingly narrow interpretation is the only way. Uh, that there's there's danger there whatever the nature of the group yeah absolutely um so we've got sort of five ten minutes left um olivia i, I did want to talk to you a little bit about your your experience of leaving because i know that can be really really hard so what was that like to you, you'd been in this thing since you were 14 um i'm not sure how old you were when you you left but you know you've been in it a long time what was that like what ex, what was that experience like yeah, I'm not quite sure how old I was when I left either. It was sort of a gradual mm. process, really. Sure. Um, 
I think for me, it was a gradual process and an unpicking. And there was a certain amount of turmoil. And I think that there, you know, I know that there are friends whose trust I have lost um, and others who think I'm wrong, um, but who have stayed in contact and and others, you know, and I found new friends. Um, I think it has been hard, but it has definitely been worth it. And I think that would go for pretty much everyone I spoke to as well. It's hard. Um, and, and other people lost an awful lot more than me. People were kicked out of their communities. People, um, one person said to me, you know, can you, a lot of people used a pseudonym. One person said, can you give me a pseudonym? Because if my son finds out, I won't be allowed to see my grandchildren again. Um, mm. And other people, you know, didn't want their parents finding out because they knew they'd be ostracized from family or their family would just treat them differently. Um, and, you know, as humans, we desperately need to belong. And that's why people stay very often stay for so long, um, because they desperately need that belonging. It's a fundamental human need. So leaving your community is one thing that's really hard, but also in terms of the beliefs, that's a profound shift of identity. It's not just, oh, I changed my mind about a couple of things. That is a huge identity piece. That's an absolute uprooting of how you've fundamentally seen the world. And that's a huge thing to go through. It's it's going to be difficult. Um, and it can, I think, you know, some people have found it pretty bleak. Some people didn't. It was a much gentler process. But for just about everybody, you know, after some time and, and often after some therapy um, and some real work mm. on getting back in touch with trusting themselves and trusting their own body, um, it is definitely something which leads to a real sense of authenticity, um, a freedom to belong to whichever group you want, a freedom to have a diversity of friends. Uh, and actually, in many ways, a lot of people found all the things that they were promised uh, within that system, they found when they left. That's the great irony of it. One thing I thought I'd just mention, because it came up a couple of times, there's a few things you mentioned. I was like, uh, you can, um, it just feels all very handmade's tale sometimes, doesn't it? You know, when you talk about the, um, mm -hmm. like having someone as your uh, sort of buddy for t checking on each other and things like that, that's something that's in the books really key mentioned is that, you know, your friends but also you're there to keep an eye on each other um yeah that yeah just there's a lot of that stuff where I remember when I first read The Handmaid's Tale and people were comparing it to church and I thought no don't be silly <laughs> but there's times gone on whether it's The Handmaid's Tale or whether it's you know Robert J. Lifton's thought reform um those sort of mm. those markers that he gives of that I kind of go oh my word I could I mean this mm. is now this feels like reading my experience of mm. particular groups, um, whether it's, I remember stumbling across when they first criminalized coercive control and I came across a sort of checklist for coercive control. And I thought, and I, and I was, I was actually doing it for work. I was working on domestic abuse stuff. And I remember just oh, stopping yeah. in my tracks and going, but, but that's church. That's yeah. my experience of church. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, at the time I wouldn't have seen it like that at all. Yeah. Yeah, it took me a long time to um to use the C word. Yeah, um, I still the, hesitate the to use the word. C word. I <laughs> yeah. think it I mean I yeah, do yeah, think yeah. it's massively overused. Um I do too, yeah. and and in many ways that's why I pref I perhaps feel more comfortable with high control group. Um mm. but um and I don't think all of those churches 
are cults, but you know that's mm. a spectrum, um, really. And you know, yeah. it's some of them. Some of them just are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, listening to your your experiences and reading uh, reading your book, I, I think it, it certainly solidified my uh, conviction that actually my group was a cult um, mm. because it, it's you know it's very different in some respects to even some of the the quite distressing stories um, around soft coercion, you know, sort of slightly coercive and, and discouraging you from, from leaving. I mean, that's, yeah. um, yeah. it's very clear you are not allowed to leave. And if you do leave, you, you, you're going to pay a massive price. Yeah. You know? So that's, that's a very different experience. And, and so, yeah, it's definitely for me, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that of, of my ex group. I mean, I think the JWs tend to have a more structured and formalized process definitely. for if you try to leave, yeah. whereas I never came across a formalized process, just like I often didn't come across a formalized hierarchy but mm. it's there. You just get yeah, frozen out, yeah. um, or or the hierarchy yeah. isn't spoken about. But my goodness, if you try and question, you know about it, uh, which <laughs> yes, which means yeah. that it flies under the radar. But oh, it's there. Mm, it's still there. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, again, it's called Uncertain. Your book, and, and we mm. didn't really get onto the reason you'd called it that. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's because of the fact that you are so certain when you're a member of a church or mm. uh, as a Jehovah's Witness, I knew everything. And then when you leave, you you realize that there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I think just that different, a number of people, wherever they'd got to with their faith and, you know, and some were atheists and some weren't and some were pagans and some were just don't knows. Uh, everybody, mm. you know, so many people sort of reflected on the difference between certainty and faith. Um, and, and, mm. you know, the, the, I guess the sort of the fuzziness of faith as opposed to, um, the concreteness of certainty and that process of becoming uncertain. Yeah. Thank you, Olivia Jackson. Thank you for coming on Cult Hackers today. Thanks very much. So last week was our special birthday episode. And at the end of the show, I read out the names of our guests and as I'd feared I missed some people I don't know how I managed it but I did so I just want to say sorry about that and thank you to Jill Adams ex-Jehovah's Witness Bethan ex-Mormon Chris Shelton ex-Scientology and also host of the Sensibly Speaking podcast Dr. Yanya Lalich cult expert, author and general hero of ours Robert Crompton ex-Jehovah's Witness author and Dr. Cullenthy, ex-Jehovah's Witness academic. So thank you to those, and sorry I missed your names, on my last reading. 